Well, if you haven't been with us before, we are going through this series called Seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, and we've made our way all the way from Genesis to the book of 2 Corinthians tonight. And uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in previous weeks, but this is one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. <laughs> Never said that before. It's a simple rule of thumb that whatever one I'm reading at the moment is the favorite one because there's something about the Holy Spirit who makes the Word come to life, and it doesn't matter where you're reading it. Sometimes you think in the most obscure passages of Scripture, God can speak wonderful truths into your life. And I would say with all honesty that there are so many passages in this book that I find special that it's really not going to be possible to even look at a, a fraction of them, but we're really trying to create a snapshot in our minds of the book in its totality so that when you come back to read it on your own, suddenly you'll see it as a unified whole and begin to hopefully derive more from it than you would if you were just kind of reading what sometimes feels like a series of disconnected statements. Do you ever feel like that when you're reading through the Bible? Like, I don't really get the big picture. It seems like just God words and holy incantations that maybe I speak these over situations. But as I always like to say, especially with Paul's letters, he's writing practical answers to practical problems for everyday people. So this evening as we look at uh, 2 Corinthians, just to begin with what I always refer to as the vital statistics of the book, is we know who the author was. It's not even one of those things that has no dispute about it, that Paul is the author. He declares himself as such in the very first word of the book. But he wrote it in about A.D. 55, and uh, under specific circumstances, Paul was on his third missionary journey. If you were here last week, we talked about Paul's three missionary journeys, and he had uh, begun with Antioch, which is in the top right-hand corner of the map, gone across this area, which we call Galatia, or Asia Minor today, it was called, uh, or modern-day Turkey, but he passed through areas like Lystra and this region in the middle, which was basically Galatia, which we'll be talking about next time, the the city of Galatia, or the letter to the Galatians, on up north to the coast to Troas. And Paul makes this statement in, in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, when, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Again, Macedonia would have been across the Aegean, northern part of the Aegean Sea, the very top of the map where you can barely see the words, part of the word Philippi, the city of Philippi. And there he went to find Titus, and eventually they linked up. But it appears as we look at the, 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 the storyline as it's laid out in the book that Paul had actually sent Titus to Corinth while he was still uh, in Antioch to really find out how they had responded to his first two letters. We have one letter that we don't know anything really about, a second letter, which is 1 Corinthians, because Paul makes reference to an earlier letter. And essentially, Paul wanted to find out what was going on because he himself was planning to come to make a visit, and he wanted to ascertain what their condition was. How did they respond to the rebukes and corrections that he had given them in the earlier letters, and also secondarily to see if they were going to be prepared for the collection of an offering that he was taking from the Gentile or the Grecian churches and was going to deliver to the church in Jerusalem. At this point, the city of Jerusalem, the Christians there were under intense persecution and many of them found themselves disenfranchised. They weren't out allowed to have jobs, to work. They were suffering from hunger and other hardships. And uh, the Grecian churches, especially Corinth, was one of those places that was uh, extremely prosperous. And the, the Greek, Greek churches were doing extremely well because they had very little opposition directly uh, to the faith. <clears throat> And he comes back, Titus comes back and meets Paul back up in Philippi and brings him a good report. In chapter 7, verse 7, it says, He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. And so it was a great report that Titus, but he also said there are some things that still are concerning. And there's three things that really stand out. Number one, in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, Paul had said in the previous letter, I'm not telling you to avoid contact with the non-Christian world because you'd literally have to leave the planet in order to do that. 
And keep in mind that Paul didn't call people to live reclusive lives uh, outside of metropolitan areas. He actually took his ministry right into the heart of the cities, right into the heart of the sin and the vice and the things that were going on in those cities. But what he's talking about, when he uses this word yoke together, in other words, the idea of a yoke of oxen, you have two animals who are bound together. It's used sometimes to define actually marriage. In marriage, we become yoked together, uh, not chained together, as some people indicate, but we're yoked together, and, and, and it means that we're carrying the burden of life. It's a shared endeavor in life. And what he is saying is that there is a limit to how intimate we can become with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. I often explain this to young people who are thinking of marrying someone who's not a Christian. I said, well, you know, if you marry them, you have to understand that you may have a physical union, you may even have an emotional union where you become unified relationally, but there's a whole dimension of life that you cannot experience together, which as you grow in Christ becomes the most important part of your life, and that's the spiritual life. That, you know, one of, the, one of the most amazing things for me as a husband is to be able to have times of prayer with my wife and for the two of us to agree on things that are important in our life, things that matter to us. And reality is when you marry someone who doesn't a follower of Jesus, it doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, they can't reciprocate. They can be the greatest person in the world. It doesn't always mean that there's a bad husband or a bad wife. It just means that there is a dimension of life that you cannot share together. And Paul says, you need to understand that we're not to yoke ourselves like that because what it does, you know, it's almost like when a, you have two animals with a yoke and one of them's dead. <laughs> the other one has to pull not only the burden but dragging the other person. And it may sound like a harsh description, but I've counseled too many people married to non-Christians not to see the similarity, that they feel like they're carrying the spiritual load of the relationship and of the family and the home, and uh, it's an exhausting proposition. And so basically Paul says, you know, we need to run, understand that when we experience God, it sets us apart whether or not we're even cooperating with that. The Holy Spirit does this work of, of setting us apart and taking us in a path that is unique to us. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenge. The second thing that he, he really focuses on, what he calls the collection for the saints that I mentioned a moment ago. And Paul was, says quite a bit between chapters 7, 8, and 9, he focuses a lot about that collection. And we get some of our most important teachings on the Christian views of giving and generosity. Paul outlines some very important things there that uh, are, are key to our understanding of how we are to relate to the material blessings that God has brought into our life in regards to His kingdom. And then thirdly, he deals with a, a serious problem. In fact, I would say that Paul in every one of his New Testament letters, uh, except for the book of Philemon, the little book of Philemon is the only one that he doesn't talk about the problem of false teachers, false apostles, apostles false prophets. That, in other words, from the earliest days of the church's uh, beginnings uh, up into the very present, there's always been a constant challenge of people who are distorting the doctrine. They're twisting the doctrine. And we find, therefore, in every letter, Paul talks about the importance of sound doctrine and about being able to distinguish between what is biblical Christianity and what is not. Now, today we live in an era where a lot of things wear the label Christianity, but I feel like that's somewhat dishonest, not only intellectually, but even deeper level, it's dishonest spiritually. Because if you don't believe what the founder of Christianity believed, which was Jesus, or his apostle Paul and others, but you believe something at variance with that, I don't know why you bother even calling yourself a Christian. You could simply say, I like Jesus, I think he's cool and all that kind of stuff, but biblical Christianity is defined by a set of beliefs, and that's believing in those things and is part of what makes us followers of Jesus and disciples of Christ. So he talks about these false apostles. In fact, twice he refers to them as super apostles. And that's an interesting designation because he's really, I don't know if you ever noticed, but Paul was really great at sarcasm. And he used a lot of it in his letters if you begin to pick it up. And this is really a sarcastic, almost mocking remark. He's, he's kind of making fun of them because this is how they viewed themselves and presented themselves. What was their doctrine? Well, we can't say with certainty because he doesn't go into detail about that. 
But there are a couple of things he references, uh, and one of them is he says in chapter 11, verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. And so the first candidate could be what we refer to as Judaizers. We talked about this when we talked about the book of Acts. And the Judaizers were Jews who had become Christians, but this is where they became at variance with Paul and eventually the entire church, even the apostles. They felt that if somebody was a Gentile, gave their life to Christ, they weren't completely saved until they also became a Jew. So you had not only uh, baptism, but you had circumcision. That you had to get baptized, and then you had to become circumcised, and then you had to start living the Jewish faith. Paul stands up against that, and we find that in, in the letter to Galatians, we'll see that even at some point, Peter struggled with this issue, but it became really the first major dividing point in the early church that Paul's doctrine, as he brings out in Romans and Galatians in particular, says, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There's no, there's no Christ and, Jesus and, to our salvation. You're saved by faith in Jesus alone and not by anything. In fact, the Galatians he talks about, he twists the word circumcision and he calls it maimcision. I mean, in other words, you maim yourself. It's like cutting off your hand while you're cutting off the foreskin. It's, he says basically it has no practical value or worth other than the fact that you're just kind of cutting on yourself. So, that's a, a possibility. There are certainly other possibilities as far as what they believed, but it seems as Paul's biggest concern is they were more concerned with the financial benefits of, than they were about the spiritual care of the people. So uh, the church was basically what Paul's really overriding concern wasn't just simply that these guys were kind of trying to push him aside and get the people to follow them. But the church was being diverted from their God-ordained mission through basically the division and strife that this was causing. As these guys began to assert themselves and draw followers, you had other people as saying, we don't recognize these people as being apostles. And this was creating tremendous conflict in the church. There was infighting and division. Now here we are, you know, 21 centuries later, where it's so common that we don't even think twice about Christians being at odds with each other. It's almost to the point where we kind of think, well, that's what you do. You get saved and then you get in a fight. You know, it's kind of the way you work. You get fighting with everybody else who is saved. But the simple fact was it was something that was quite striking to Paul and a deep concern to him and obviously for understandable reasons. Paul basically knew there would never be any peace or reconciliation within the church until these pretenders really were put into their proper place, that they were bringing division and strife because what they were doing is trying to use the ministry as a way of exalting themselves. So when I, oftentimes I try to define what I think is the key verse, and at least for me, uh, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul is concluding the letter by saying to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a, in a few moments, but this becomes really the, it's going to become that kind of rubric through which I'm going to approach this entire uh, book because in my outline of it, I've divided into three sections, uh, not necessarily because the passages always line up this way, but there's three key things that stand out to me about Paul's message in this book. The number one is he begins by talking about, examine me. Examine me. Am I truly an apostle of God? And he opens himself up to a point where it is clearly the most personally transparent letter that Paul wrote. It's the most biographical. We know 90% of what we know about Paul, we know about because of what he said about himself in this particular book. And there's, there's no other letter that compares to it, whether we're talking about even more so than the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts kind of outlines the, the uh, uh, geographical aspects and, the, and other things of Paul's life, where he went, what he did, who he talked to. But here this book, Paul talks about himself. And he admits things about himself that I think oftentimes we read it and don't even pick up on, that Paul talks about his struggles, the times when it was extremely difficult and, and how God gave him grace through that. So he begins by saying, I'm, examine me, first of all. Then secondly, he tells him, examine these super apostles, 
What are they really motivated by? And then lastly, he's saying, you need to examine yourselves. You need to take a good hard look at your own heart and see why you are attracted to this kind of stuff in the first place. Because it's interesting, when we talk about people's besetting sins, things that become temptations for people, we often kind of focus on the legality of their transgression. In other words, here's what the Bible says, you've broken the Bible, therefore you're in sin. But the question we really need to ask is, why is it attractive to us in the first place? Because the simple thing is that most of us know that the things that are wrong, that we, or when we do something wrong, we already know we probably shouldn't be doing that or thinking that or saying that or acting that way, but we do it anyway. And then we get befuddled saying, I don't understand why I keep on falling into the same problem. We need to ask ourselves at those points, what is it that makes this attractive to me? Because we do it because we think we're going to get some benefit out of it. Now, I think when I talk about Adam and Eve, one of the things I pondered for a long time, why in the world did Eve know what God said? He said, don't eat that fruit. And why did she go ahead and eat it anyway? And the answer really is kind of sad. I found it by looking at myself. It's because we believe that disobedience is more profitable than obedience. That's the simple explanation of why we make choices that we know are wrong. Because, I mean, there's some things we do because we don't know better, you know. <laughs> we, nobody ever told us that you're not supposed to do this or we haven't read it in the Scriptures. And that's one reason. But a lot of stuff that people do, they say, well, I know I'm not supposed to, but. And, you know, that's when we pull the cord and crank up the Christian motorboat. But, 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 you know, it's a, we cruise through excuses. But the simple fact is that we do it because we really are deceived in our own minds to thinking that if I disobey God, it's going to turn out better than if I obey Him. So as I was using the example or illustration earlier about yoked together with an unbeliever, a Christian marries a non-Christian. I've had this conversation many times, and sadly, after the fact, where a Christian young man or young woman will marry somebody, and I said, well, you knew that that probably wasn't God's best for you to marry a non-Christian. Why did you do it? Well, because you know, I, I love them, and, and if I don't marry them, I'm not sure another one will come into my life ever again. And so, what are they saying when they make a statement like that? It's because they believed that they, were, they would be more advantaged to do what they want to do than if they simply trusted God and said, God, you have somebody out there for me, and I'm going to wait and trust you to bring that right person in. Now, I have people all the time ask me, well, do you believe that God has a perfect person for each person to marry? And I, I have two answers. Uh, if you're not married, I'm saying, not necessarily. Make sure that you, dis you find out if this is the right fit, you know. Uh, if you're already married, the answer is absolutely yes. <laughs> Don't even ask yourself the question. The one you're married to is the one that God perfectly chose for you. Uh, I know it sounds kind of weird to say that, but the simple reality is that you have to approach relationships, marriage relationships that way, that, you know, if I'm married to this person, I'm going to react to them as the one that God has given to me, because the moment I said I do, it doesn't matter whatever went before. Now this is the one that God wants you to... Um, uh, to grow and to mature with. And just because a marriage relationship can be difficult at various times, at least I've heard that theoretically, I haven't personally experienced that, but even though it can be difficult at times, that is certainly no evidence that you married the wrong person. <laughs> because that may be exactly the person that God chose who is going to rub you wrong in just the right way. And that's, you know, that's where growth comes, from, comes into our lives. When we find ourselves challenged to choose, I'm going to continue to love and walk in love towards this person, even though, you know, uh, he, she's going through some three-letter period PMS in their life or something like that, or whether or not it's just, you know, whatever the dynamic is, I'm going to love that person because that's God's will. And that's most pleasing. And I grow as a result. And, uh, and so, anyway, I don't want to turn this into a marriage seminar. But, so let's talk about this, this first part where Paul says, examine me. And he, he makes this statement in chapter 6, verse 11, that kind of is, 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 sums up everything I've said about his openness. He says, we, spoke, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. Now, Paul, that's interesting, because I think we often overlook the fact that Paul lived an amazingly transparent life 
there was an authenticity to Paul that people could see. And I'm convinced that being authentic is far more powerful than any other kind of uh, profundity we can try to embrace in our life. That people really want to know, is this the real deal? Are you the real deal? And you know how you convince people that you're the real deal? You don't make up stuff. You don't pretend like you're somehow different. Well, I got saved. I used to sin and then I got saved. You know, and then I left my sinful ways away. Well, you know, on one level, I mean, because of our sin nature, if you're sucking air, you're sinning. I mean, it's just, it's the nature of the beast, if you will. But the fact is that I am a sinner who's been redeemed by the grace of God, and I have been forgiven, and I have given the power to live above the power of sin or the habit of sin or the proclivity for sin. God has done that in my life, but I am not better because of it. And as someone once said, and it was, well, I, I, it's one of my favorite sayings of all times, that if it's good, it's Jesus, and if it's bad, it's me. I mean, that's, that's just simply a, a truism. And so when there are things that come out of me that aren't glorifying to God, that's me. That's my sin nature just reminding me it's still there. When something good comes out of it, I can't sit back and applaud myself and say, what, what, what a fine man I am. I have to sit back and say, you know, that was a grace of God working in and through my life. And I think that Paul was probably so disarming because he didn't try to pretend to be something that he wasn't. He didn't feel like he had to impress people or, you know, he was a safe guy to be around. You know, he was a safe guy to be around because he didn't criticize you for being sinful. He didn't condemn people because of their struggles or difficulties because he himself was, I am chief. I'm number one. I'm the first in line when it comes to people who have things to feel bad about in my life because I persecuted the church. I mean, I, I caused the death of Christians, and I caused the imprisonment of Christians, and I destroyed families and lives in my zeal for my, my misguided beliefs, and God forgave me. He can forgive anybody, and I just think Paul was an, an incredibly gracious guy. But what is the evidence of of his apostleship. Well, I never really recognized how much Paul talked about the difficulties that he faced uh, until I really started, this kind of popped in my brain, why don't you do a study on this? And I did. And I thought here in chapter 1 and verse 8, he starts off by saying, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Do you know there's no record of what he's talking about outside of this statement? In other words, what we began to figure out, find out is Paul went through far more than you and I even know about or history has ever recorded. And he says, I don't, you know, I don't have to tell you how close we came to basically packing it all in. We, were, we figured, we're done, it's over. Chapter 4 and verse 8, he picks it up again. He says, we were hard-pressed on every side. The, word, the phrase hard-pressed literally means that your world is collapsing in on you. You ever felt like that, like your entire world is collapsing in on you? And he says, uh, but not crushed. We should have been wiped out, but somehow we got squeezed as tight as you could squeeze, but we didn't break and become crushed. He says we were perplexed, talked about that word Sunday, with overwhelming problems without any uh, observable solution. I'm, I don't know what to do. What do we do now? I have no idea. He says we were totally perplexed, and yet he says we never, gave, we never became despairing. In other words, giving up and, and just writing it off. We were persecuted, which the word persecuted literally means there to be pursued in an effort to cause you harm. There were people who intentionally were pursuing us and trying to harm us, but we were never abandoned. And then he adds, lastly, he says, we were struck down or literally cast down. Uh, the, the phrase literally means to have somebody punch you in the face and knock you to the ground. And he describes it. We were just bam, flattened on the ground, and yet he says, but not destroyed. And Paul's whole point is, man, we've gone through everything, but 
we just keep on coming back and keeping on and moving forward. And that's why last week I, I shared, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 58, where be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is never in vain. The key is not always winning. The key is just not giving up. One of my favorite stories from, from the Roman history was the, the efforts of uh, Epirus, who was the king of Epirus, who came to, uh, to uh, Sicily to conquer it and, and to take it away from the Romans early in the, uh, about in 163. Epirus was basically the, um, he was the, uh, um, the king of this, the city of Pyrrhus. He was a cousin of Alexander the Great, and he wanted to become the next Alexander. And so he invaded the island, and the Sicilians were very unsophisticated at that time, uh, military and otherwise, and so he easily conquered the island. But the Romans, still being the Roman Republic, they hadn't become the empire yet. Uh, this is about 163 B.C., decided that they couldn't allow this to happen in their neighborhood. It would be kind of like us letting the Russians uh, conquer Cuba. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not something, it's in our realm of sphere of interest. So they put an army together, they went down, they confronted Epirus, and uh, what happened was that um, uh, Pyrrhus had an army with war elephants, and the Romans had never seen war elephants, and he charged with these war elephants, and the Romans were terrified and ran and suffered a terrible defeat, and so what they did was they formed another army and they came back and they worked on a strategy to deal with the elephants and they came up with a strategy that was fairly successful. They killed a number of the elephants, but they were still defeated and had to flee from the battlefield. And after the second victory over the Roman armies, uh, Pyrrhus's generals came to him and said, congratulating him on the great victory. And his response was, one more victory like that and we'll lose the war. In other words, he won, but it was such a costly defeat in terms of man and material that he decided just to give up the campaign, got in his ships and sailed back to, to Epirus to, to uh, uh, contend himself with it. Because one of the secrets of Roman victory uh, in ancient history was they didn't win every battle. They just never stopped coming. And the Romans could always draft another, pull together another army, and they would just go back, and they would learn from their defeats, learn from their mistakes, and then they would wage war again. And uh, that's how they ended up conquering much of the known world in their day. And there's a real lesson in that, I think, in terms of the spiritual life. We know that we're not going to win every battle. We're going to try things. We're going to get defeated. We're going to, I'm going to share the gospel with my coworker this week and really prepare for it. And then we go in and it doesn't go well. <laughs> and, we, and we say, well, I'm never going to do that again. No, no. What you do is you go back, you pray about it, you study, you seek God and say, Lord, what did I do wrong? And realize that every moment of your life is a building experience where God is teaching you. And that's the thing I think that stands out to me with Paul, because we have this idea that he just lived this charmed life, that everywhere he went, he just raised his powerful hands, and the power of the Holy Spirit began to come out of it, you know, is, is like frozen, you know, and he just controlled it. No, man, he just got beaten up and knocked down and crushed, but then he just got up and he came back, and he came back, and he came back. And it's, 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 I've noticed this, my wife is like, she, <laughs> there's people in her life who maybe tried to have tried to distance themselves because of what's going on in her life. She won't let go. She just texts them, praying for you, love you, praying for you, <laughs> love you, praying for you, love you. And it just wears them down. <laughs> Eventually, they just kind of go, oh, well, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, she just wheedles her way in there by sheer persistence. And I think there's something of value because it's not the people who just march in and just conquer and wipe out everything that changed the world. It's the people who just keep on chiseling away, just keep on going on, keep on going on. And I personally believe that's who Paul was. Because even again, chapter 6, he says, he says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. 
And then he goes on in chapter 7, he says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Isn't that interesting? Paul said, there were times we just were, we were terrified by what we were dealing with. I mean, we were scared sometimes. But chapter 11, where he probably gives his, his, his largest broadside, when he simply says to them, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times from the Jews, uh, I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Roman law said you could only lash a man 39 times because they considered anything beyond that would kill the person. So when we talk about somebody, that phrase you've heard it, beaten within an inch of your life, that's where that statement comes from. You, they, he, five times, not just once. Five times, he said, I was beaten within an inch of my life. He says three times, I was beaten with rods. Now, these were long poles, about five feet long. They were literally uh, poles that were stripped and, and dried and hardened, and, and they, were, they would be soaked in oil to make them stiff and flexible, and they would take them and wad them up in, in, a, in, in a, like a half a dozen together, and they would hit you with it. I mean, he said that I had three times I got beaten with those. You know, I'm looking at one time and I'm done. One swat. I mean, I'm going to write books about it the rest of my life and go on a speaking tour. You know what I mean? And he says, once I was stoned. That's because marijuana was legal. No, it's... A <laughs> but look, we know about that, about him and Lister being stoned to death. Three times he says, I was shipwrecked. <sighs> shipwrecked. He says, I spent a night and a day in the open and sea. I I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, in dangers from false brethren, in dangers of the IRS. No, that's, no, that's me. Okay. I have labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I, I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. On top of all that stuff, he says, I never, my heart is never removed from, from God's people, from the churches that I've started and planted and what they're having to deal with. And that's why... On top of all that, he tells us in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, And to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. He talks about probably when he was stoned, being caught up into the third heaven. Third heaven is a metaphor in, in Jewish cosmology. It talks about basically the presence of God. It's where you go when you die. Your soul goes when you die. He says, I was caught into third heaven. And he says, I saw things that... Literally, we translated. There's not human vocabulary to describe what I saw. So, if you've ever read the book of Revelation and go, "What is he talking about?" That's because there's not human vocabulary adequate to describe what's seen in the Eternals. But essentially, we might even say it would be a crime. I'd do such a disservice to what I saw if I tried to put it into human language that I couldn't even utter. I couldn't even describe it. But he says to keep me from becoming proud because of what I saw. I sometimes think Paul had to battle pride just like the rest of us. And he said, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Literally, it's, you talk about a thorn, these long thorns that they grow all around Jerusalem. I mean, they're long pointed things. And he said, there was just like that thing dug right deep down in my flesh and was broken off. A messenger of Satan to torment me. I love one translation or paraphrase, put it this way. God gave me the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. The gift of a handicap to keep me in touch with my limitations. One of the things that we often overlook is that you have certain limitations. I know most of us try to pretend that we don't, <laughs> but life, you know, life squeezes it out of us. You know, we, we got them. You know, it's, uh, uh, and uh, I spent years trying to convince my wife, no, it's not you, it's me. Uh, and the simple fact is we all have these things. And he says that God will allow things in your life that actually aggravate and, and squeeze to the surface the very things you're trying to conceal from other people. 
Those kind of things you want to kind of keep hidden. You know, was Mark Twain said, we all have a dark side. We hope that, <laughs> that uh, we're like the moon. We have a dark side. We hope that nobody will ever see. And God has a way of sometimes allowing your dark side to come out in the open. And when it does, you know, what is it? you sit there and say, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? And the answer is really simple. It, it breaks your pride. It keeps you from becoming inauthentic. Or if you become inauthentic, it makes you get real with yourself and with other people. Well, basically, what is the evidence of his apostleship? He tells us what he sacrificed, the hardships, the evidence, he says in chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And that was a custom. You show up someplace, you don't know anybody, you have a letter, and it says, from somebody important, says, I know who this guy is, and you can trust him. He says, do I need that? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of human hearts. He says, people, you want to question whether I'm valid as an apostle? You're in the faith. I'm the father of your faith. So, I mean, there's your evidence, but it's also evidenced, he said, by his love. Chapter 12, verse 15, he says to him, so I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? I like the way King James put it, the more I love you, the less you love me. (laughs) But he's simply saying, that doesn't matter, I'm going to still continue to love you because the evidence, he said, is really kind of what Jesus described in the Good Shepherd in John 10. He says, the hireling, when things get difficult, takes off and leaves. The Good Shepherd stays with the flock. Then he turns secondly, and we talked about examining these super apostles, and Paul talks about three things about them. When he talks about their, their motive, why they do what they do, what their methodology is, and then lastly, I, I just simply put it as their masquerade. You'll notice that they all kind of line up here, motive, method, and masquerade, because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. But uh, in verse chapter 2, verse 17, he says about their motive, he says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Again, in chapter 12, 14, he says, what I want, you, what, what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And then he moves on, essentially implying that this is what they're motivated by. You guys, they're going to exploit you for financial gain. Their method, basically deception and distortion to begin with. He says in chapter 4, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God implying that that's what they do. And they also use self-promotion. He says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I love in chapter 10, verse 12, the New Living Translation makes this statement. It says, oh, don't worry. I wouldn't dare say that I'm as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are but they are only comparing themselves with each other and measuring themselves by themselves. What foolishness. And all that is describing somebody who is going around trying to impress you with how godly or spiritual or powerful or wonderful they are. And then Paul really levels the biggest issue, he says, but the key is that these guys are wearing a mask. They're wearing a mask. He says... For such men, in chapter 11, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be their act, what their actions deserve. So underlying it all, Paul says, whether they know it or not, they are really the servants of Satan because You can only serve one of two places. You can serve God or you can serve the devil. I mean, that's the reality of every life. So that when somebody was complaining to me about certain politicians that, you know, live in in, in, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, I just said, you have to understand that people are taken captive by the evil one. 
You know, you start hating this person or getting angry and resentful at them because you feel like they're doing harmful things. Right or wrong, the reality is that they themselves are a victim as well. Because if they don't truly know Jesus, there is a fate awaiting them that is terrifying to even contemplate. And to simply become angry at this politician or that politician or this person or that person, it misses the point completely because you stop praying for what you should be praying for. You should be praying that God would save them and deliver them from whatever delusions they're held captive by, not praying that God would kill them or remove them and destroy them, but praying that God would save them. Uh, because, <laughs> but even, even the case of false apostles, said, pray for them. Well, that brings me to the last thing where Paul has told us, examine me, examine these apostles, examine yourselves. And we might ask the question, why? Well, he says, examine yourselves or test yourselves. Literally, the term means inspect in detail to determine the true nature or true condition that you're in. It's Psalm 139, verse 24, where Paul said, or excuse me, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me. That's a lot harder to pray honestly than I think any of us recognize, especially if you pray it, pray it in quiet when your own devotional time. You say, Lord, just search me and show me my heart. Um, you got to have some gumption to pray that prayer because God's going to show it to you. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here to these guys. You need to really step back and say, what is really going on here? What's really happening? What, what's really am I really addressing in my own life or feeling and how am I reacting? And I would say that particularly if you're having struggle with another person, you need to really ask yourself what, or ask God, God, what is really going on? Show me my own heart. He says, because you need to examine yourself to see whether you're even in the faith. Or literally, as the Amplified says, that there's a genuineness to your own conversion experience. Uh, because he says, because he goes on in chapter 5 of the same book, he said earlier, for we must all appear before the judgment seat uh, of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat was literally a public place of tribunal. It was a raised platform in front of the governing palace where the ruler would go out and he would actually pass judgment on cases that were brought before him. Most people don't realize that one of the reasons many of the Roman emperors died after a short time in office was because even when Rome ruled the world, any Roman citizen who wanted to make a complaint to the, about how he's being treated could go to the emperor personally and demand an audience publicly, so that these emperors would sit hours upon end listening to one complaint after another. Remember what, what Jethro said to Moses? If you do this all day, you're going to wear yourself and the people out because you can't handle it. Well, the Romans hadn't figured that out because they didn't listen to God. And so as a result, some of the emperors literally died early because they just got exhausted from their workload listening to people's complaints hour after hour after hour after hour. But that was what the tribunal was. He would have to sit there and listen to people come, make accusations against each other and try cases, and he'd have to decide like Solomon did with the two prostitutes that came in with their babies. And he says, you know, cut the baby in half and give half to each of the women. And then he revealed who the true mother was because she was the one who had compassion and concern for the child's welfare. Well, that's essentially the way it worked in the ancient world and even very close up in even more modern times. And so Paul says, well, you have to understand that the day is coming where you're going to have to give account for your life. And sometimes we're remiss in the church. We either go to one extreme or the other. We have the one extreme that says, well, you better make sure that you have enough good merits to get into heaven. That's false teaching. That's not what the Bible says. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about rewards. But on the other hand, some people say, well, I'm saved, and so even though my life is a train wreck, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't care because I'm going to get to go to heaven anyway. I don't care if I have more rewards. I think you will, and I don't know how that works. But I just know that he, Paul makes it very clear. As he said earlier back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he told us the day of Christ will <clears throat> bring all of our works to light. In other words, the day when Christ comes, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, whatever that means or whatever that looks like. And he says, it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. You know, basically, he's, he's, Paul's exhorting us, give due concern to how you're living your life because every day of your life is like stacking bricks and building a house or a wall one upon another. And one day you'll stand before God and God will reward you for what you've done. And that is supposed to be an impetus to us. What are rewards people have asked me? I have no idea. I mean, really, I just got an idea it's probably good. If God's the guy, if God's the one who's giving them out, they got to be good. (laughs) They got to be worth getting. And he says, I'm going to give them to you. But live your life with that realization that nothing you do is wasted energy. There's There's a consequence to every moment of your life. That's why your life always, every decision you make, every, every word you speak, every thought that you give permission to linger in your brain. And I say that because you can't control every thought necessarily that comes into your brain, but you can control the ones you allow to hang out and, and pitch their tent in the middle of your head. You know, every one of those, there are things that have an impact upon my life and the circumstances of my world. And he says, it matters it matters. Don't think it doesn't. It matters. And as a consequence, he says, God will reward you accordingly. He's not unjust to forget, as the writer of Hebrews says, your labor of love. He's not going to forget what you've done. He's going to reward you for it. And one of the things, of course, as I said in chapter 7, 8, and 9, he addresses this gift for the church's Uh, in Jerusalem. And just a couple of passages that I'll close with. In in chapter 8, verse 7, he says to them, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel also in the grace of giving. He's talking about financial giving, monetary giving. He says that giving money is actually a grace that God gives to you, that He graciously gives that you might graciously give to others. And then, in fact, He says kind of a governing principle uh, in chapter 9, verse 5, He says that they are to give a generous gift. He says, not as one who gives grudgingly. You know, God is not, uh, doesn't look at somebody saying, okay, I guess that's what I have to pay my dues. Or You know, God doesn't look at it and say, oh, that just feels so good. You know, it'd be kind of like buying your wife or your husband a Christmas gift and said, here, can't afford it, but I had to get you something. You know, I mean, nobody's going to sit there and go, oh, thank you so much. I felt the love. (laughs) No, and sometimes that's how we respond to God. Okay, I guess I have to do this. Uh, He goes on to say, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. In other words, giving should be based upon what would we do? I mean, this is something, I, my wife, we had this conversation today. But we felt like God wanted us to do something, and I, we sat there and talked and prayed about what are we supposed to do? And it's interesting how many times we will actually come to an agreement on a number. <laughs> we'll both go, that's exactly what I was thinking. But it's that thing where you, you, you need to wrestle things out with God sometimes. That there are people who will come to your lives and situations will arise and and, and God's going to put it on your heart to, to bless them or to help them to meet their need. And you need to sit there and say, God, help me to define what is it I'm supposed to do. I can't, I'm not to give beyond what I can afford to do. He even goes in detail to talk about that. But he goes on to say, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word, you've heard me probably say it before, but it's the word hilarion in Greek, and it's where we get, it's the root to our English word hilariously. It's the idea that it's a celebration to do it. It's a celebration. Then in a way, if I can't give celebrating the fact that I am able to give, then probably my motives are, are tainted and I need to spend more time with God. Because I really believe this. I mean, I, I really believe that, that people should not give, whether they're giving to the church, they're giving to a friend or to a ministry or a movement. You shouldn't do it if you feel like, yeah, I, I better do this so I can escape fire. You know, I mean, or I'm going to give so that God will give back a hundredfold. I mean, I listened to a guy one time on TV and he's saying, this is a year of the thousand percent blessing. 
He says, if you give, God will give you a thousand percent back. I wanted to call up and say, give to me then. <laughs> and see how God bless. If that's true, you should be giving money away, not trying to get people to give it to you. You can't guarantee that. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I've seen it happen. But you can't say do it in order to get. You don't give to get. You give because God has given. I don't give to get. I give because I have been given. And that's one of the statements I didn't put in here, but Paul says, Christ, who is rich, became poor for your sake, that you might become rich. And so what does that give me? It gives me the opportunity. I can give my time, I can give my energy, and I can give my resources. These are things that God has blessed you and I with. And he says, use them as ways to further his kingdom. But don't ask me what or who or how much you should give to anything. That is something you're supposed to figure out between you and God in your own private prayer life. And, uh, and I don't want to know. Really, I don't want to know. It's, some people don't understand this, but I have no idea who gives what in this church. You know, some people think I'm back there looking at the records saying, well, I'll see how Brother Jones is doing this month. <laughs> I don't do that, man. I can't handle that. <laughs> that's, that's, spiritually, that's way over my pay grade. But the simple fact is, that's... Not, not even think anything I even want to know. Because in the end of the day, when you talk about your own life, you're talking about ministry, God is the giver. He doesn't come through. You don't look to people. You look to God. He's the one who provides. He's the one who blesses. He's the one who does beyond you can, what you can even imagine. But whatever we do, we should do it as an honor, that God has given me the honor to do this and to make a difference. And with that, I will quit. Six minutes and 58 seconds over budget. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us hearts that hear your heart and who are moved with a passion that comes from you and not from guilt and not from even human inspiration or manipulation or anything else, Lord, but we are people who are, have learned how to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.